When I see a school district saying, oh, well, our graduation rates for Indigenous students is up 2% this year from last year. That's that's fantastic. And I'm like, oh, yeah, great. Our Indigenous students are getting more assimilated every year each as we go. Yay, that's not a win for us. And I think what we need to unpack and dismantle is what do we mean by success? What does success look like within these spaces? And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher down here in the Los Angeles area. This is year 18 in the classroom for me, and this, of course, is all of the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. We want to welcome everybody, especially those who might be joining us for the very first time, either watching us on YouTube or listening on the go. Shout out to y'all for, um, for yeah, taking some time out of your day to uh, be part of these conversations that we have here on All the Above. Jeff, man, it's... It's fall. The seasons, the seasons are finally changing. You know what I'm saying? The the Southern California hundred degree summer is now a nice, cool, crisp autumn '90s in whatever. And um, <laughs> and we're good, man. How you doing? How you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. Uh, you know, doing doing well. Um, I. I find it laughable that uh, here in LA, you, you start off today's show talking about the seasons are changing because ain't no season changing here, Dude, man. we well, go from straight hundreds to straight 90s, man. That is a change. That, that is, is that, I feel that. Okay. All right. So if you, if, if you live in Southern California, you understand the significance of that, or maybe if you live in Arizona or something too, because like when it's a hundred and people are like, oh, but it's a dry heat, like, you know. So yes. is the oven, right? So uh, it's, it, yes, that is a difference. However, there's no seasonal change. The only fall we have here is what you see when you walk down the aisle at CVS or the fact that there's pumpkin spice everything, pumpkin spice deodorant at Target and pumpkin spice toothpaste and all this kind of stuff. So that's how you know it's fall in, in Los Angeles. <laughs> man, you're bringing me down, man. This is the best time of year, man. Nice. Nice, cool, cool, warm breeze. Santa Ana winds coming through. Actually, that's it's fire season nowadays. Actually, with those Santa Ana winds coming through. But hey, uh, man, yeah, spooky man, season, I, Halloween coming up. All that, all that I, stuff, man. It's we're we're here, man. We're into the school year. Several weeks, or not, if not months, into the school year, depending on where our listeners or viewers are are watching from. So yeah, man, we in here, man, we in here. Yeah, and here we yeah. are. I did have to stay inside uh, the last two days for, for at least parts of the day because of smoke. So uh, fire season yes. uh, is, is for real. And total non sequitur here for a moment, Manuel. Speaking of pumpkin spice, uh, I want this to be my official notice to Trader Joe's that I'm upset with you because I usually go buy uh, these, these um, almond yogurts, okay, that are mango and they're orange. And apparently they got some pumpkin spice yogurts that look exactly the same and are orange. And I bought two of them and brought them home and was getting ready to enjoy my delicious mango yogurt for breakfast and bit into it and was like, look, what is this pumpkin spice yogurt? And I'm not above pumpkin spice, okay? But like yogurt, come on now. The hipsters are out of control. Stop, stop with this. Free, free us from pumpkin spice everything, please. 
So you're mad at Trader Joe's because you didn't read the label. You know, it was it was right there in the spot where the mango usually is, man. I'm a creature of habit, and I expect uh, to not be duped by um, unwitting pumpkin spice consumption. That's all I'm saying. Justice for Jeffrey Garrett. I hear you, man. I hear you. Bring <laughs> back the mango. Get that pumpkin spice up out of his reach. That's right. Let's get a hashtag going. Maybe a GoFundMe. Uh, let's let's make this happen. Got to do what we got to do. Yeah. All right. But here we are on all of the above. Another full episode, which means we definitely are going to have a super dope guest. So Jeff, will you let us know what's on the agenda for today? Well, Manuel, as usual, we got a good one for everybody. And um, I am very excited because we have a guest coming on today who's going to help us dig into a topic that I think is like a phrase that gets um, gets thrown about, uh, particularly in more progressive circles. And, you know, it, it makes people feel good to say. And I don't say that, you know, from a any place of critique, but it's one of those phrases that we use, but maybe haven't necessarily unpacked the fullness of, um, that being uh, decolonizing education. And today we have uh, someone coming on the show, uh, Carolyn Roberts, who is a professor at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, uh, up there in Canada, um, who is a noted uh, speaker, uh, teacher, educator, who's going to help us unpack this big question of how do we decolonize education, both in terms of the curriculum and in terms of how we, um, how we uh, engage in instructional practices in the classroom. Um, and specifically through the lens of helping educators and students grapple with, understand, and engage you know, in, in responsible, respectful, humanizing ways with indigenous cultures in a country and a continent that has just a, you know, undeniable history of, of conquest and colonization. So um, it's going to be a fascinating conversation. You definitely don't want to miss it. Sounds dope. Can't wait. But up first is our do now. Let's take a look at recent news and headlines in the world of education. That's coming up next. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's take a look at some news in the world of education. Jeff, how are we going to do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, today uh, it is time to check for comprehension, check for understanding, Manuel. We have a uh, pop quiz for everybody out there in the all the above uh, multiverse. So thinking caps on. Pop quiz time. Pop quiz, pop quiz. Let's do it. All right, Jeff, first question. Whatever happened to those good old auto shop and, and, and wood shop classes that we used to have back in the day? Mm, mm. Uh, I loved wood shop in high school, uh, actually. Um, had a fascinating teacher who was missing um, these, these tips on a couple of fingers and, and used those. It's wow. a great lesson for us, Medwell. Uh, but I will say um, they went to the cutting room floor, man, like art and music and all the, uh, all the other good stuff in school. They just chopped it with the, with the budget cuts. That's my final answer. A lot of chopping and cutting happening in your answer there with the missing <laughs> fingertips and all that, which is a visual True. I didn't need. But um, yeah, I also loved <laughs> Wood shop. I had that actually in eighth grade. It was super dope. I still oh, have wow. a few things that I made back then. Wow, that's next level middle school right there, man. Wood oh yeah, yeah. Grade. We okay. we had all kinds of dope classes at that time. I don't think any of those exist at that middle school now. But in this case, the answer here is that um, a lot of those programs evolved into what we now know as career technical education or CTE. And this story here pertains to 
what students are enrolled in some of the more advanced CTE classes and which students are being kept out. All right, so we get this thanks to some reporting from Sarah Butrimowicz for the Heckinger Report. And she reports that recent figures released for the first time as part of new federal data on student enrollment in career and technical programs show that black and Hispanic students benefit less often from classes connected to higher paying careers in college degrees than their white peers. Previously, the Department of Education only reported enrollment in CTE career areas by gender. A 2018 reauthorization of the federal law that governs career and technical education mandated racial data be reported as well. And this new data shows that despite years of work by some educators and advocates to increase equity in career and technical education, deep disparities remain. White students are more likely than black and Hispanic students to take classes in fields such as manufacturing, information technology, and STEM, while black students are more likely to take courses in hospitality and tourism. In Nevada, just 4% of students who took a career-oriented science, technology, engineering, and math course in the 2019 school year, 88 students total, were black, even though black students make up more than 11% of the state's public school enrollment. In Alabama, only 16 Hispanic students, not 16%, but 16 students took more than one information technology class, and that represents less than 1% of all the students who took more than one class. Meanwhile, Hispanic students in Alabama accounted for 9% of the state's K-12 students. Alicia Hislop, a senior director of, of public policy for the nonprofit Association of Career and Technical Education, said, quote, it shows that we have a lot of work to do. There are a lot of historical challenges to overcome in how black students in particular interface with CTE. And this dates back to decades. To, this dates back decades to when there was segregation in these programs. So, Jeff, it looks like our black and brown students are not benefiting from these higher paying, higher, more advanced type CTE career field courses than the white students at their schools. How surprised are you by this? I'm uh, not particularly surprised, Manuel, because that's how everything goes in, <laughs> in education, right? And in society. So, you know, on that level, of course, it's not surprising. It is disappointing. It is perhaps disheartening. And, um, you know, and it is also an issue where, I, for me at least, it raises all kinds of like very nuanced uh, political thoughts and feelings, okay? Because I think that um, what we have seen in education over the last half century or so was a righteous pushback against a very rigid, um, you know, sort of traditional way of thinking about CTE, which is like, where can we dump all the students we don't value, right? right? So uh, low-income students, black students, immigrant students, whatever the label is that we want to marginalize, we'll just push them, you know, um, into those classes because they're good with their hands or, you know, or that sort of thing, right? Um, and I think, unfortunately, from my perspective, what has happened is the, um, the association of our racist behaviors and our classist behaviors and practices with the, the work, the labor, the professions that those CTE uh, programs were focused on, um, that some of the blame shifted from the practitioners of the racism to the 
to the field, right? To the like, oh, well, we can't be, you know, teaching kids wood shop or plumbing or how to be an electrician or something like this because that's, that's, uh, that's actually what the, you know, the oppression is, right? Um, and so in its resurgence, what we've seen is CTE programs that are, it's almost like the gentrification of CTE. And I'm not saying this because I have any problem with like, you know, data science programs or IT programs or, you know, kids learning, um, just the new landscape of professions that exist, right? I'm not mad at that at all. But I am, um, what I'm sensing, Manuel, and I, I don't have a study to back this up, but just from my experience, uh, you know, in, in, for a long time in New York City, knowing and working with many schools that um, had CTE models or CTE programs, and also here in LA, um, and a sprinkling of other places, is that we've seen this kind of gentrification of what CTE is. So now CTE programs are things that are requiring higher level liberal arts education, which is the, already the place where we are seeing the greatest equity gaps in our field, right? So if you are, if you are requiring students to have great success in Algebra 2 in order to access this CTE program, you're going to replicate the racist, classist, oppressive aspects of the system that already exist. So I don't know that this is necessarily a, um, you know, like, oh, we have to solve this problem in CTE. This is a problem whether the CTE program is there or not, okay? Um, now that's not, I don't say that to let, let CTE programs off the hook, especially in Nevada where there's only 16 black students taking more than one class, like that's crazy. Um, but all that to say, man, well, I think, this story reminded me a lot of um, the, the story that kind of went viral a few years ago of uh, Jeffrey Owens, the, um, the actor, former actor from the Cosby show who, um, who played uh, Elvin, right? Um, the kind of like uh, goofy uh, husband character, right? And uh, he was, you know, quote unquote, caught working at Trader Joe's, right? And came out and made this really profound statement publicly about the dignity of work. And I think we have this kind of, um, right now, this kind of elitism over CTE programs that I feel like is, is growing, right? Um, which is leading to the replication of like the most privileged kids getting the best access to quote unquote CTE. Um, and what is preventing us from opening that, um, you know, that sphere up is our kind of internalized idea that like certain types of work are more valuable than others or are better than others, like inherently superior. Um, and, you know, he made this statement about like, I, you know, there's dignity in work. I have a job, I'm doing a job and people shouldn't be looking down on me because I'm doing this job, right? Like this job has value. And um, so anyways, Manuel, it's kind of a circuitous path of my thoughts there, but I think Yes, we need to address the equity issues of representation in the CTE programs. And I think we got to look more fundamentally at like, how does all the new bougie CTE programs actually just reflect the most privileged people in society making the CTE programs that they want to make so that their kids can get where they are, right? And not thinking about the broader uh, swath of society. Yeah, I like what you said there when you when you labeled it or 
you use the, I think you use the term gentrification of CTE or the phrase gentrification of CTE, which is exactly what I was thinking when I read this story, because, you know, back in the day when we were coming up in the school system, these, these programs were, were sort of like the dumping ground for like students who weren't college bound necessarily. It's like, well, they ain't going to college. So teach them some hands-on stuff so they could, you know, find a trade or something. And to see that evolution to now, it's like, well, these programs now, Many of them deal with with career industries where like the pay is really high up there, the prestige is really high up there, and these high skilled professions are like really need some some workers. So like a lot of these programs now now we see like oh now they're suddenly super popular and very very I mean taking these and taking multiple classes in a particular career field. Um, not only do colleges want to see that, like in some cases that might get you directly into a career. And now it's like, oh, now we see the, instead of that being the dumping ground, in some cases it looks like, especially uh, this article points out Alabama and Nevada as two examples. Now it's like, that's not the dumping ground. That's like where the privileged kids are going because they know that's where the money is and the prestige is. And, and then the, the black and brown kids get sort of forgotten or left behind. But one important thing about this though, is that, you know, this data is, is new because they weren't having to report racial data for a CTE enrollment prior to the 2018 reauthorization, which reminds me of something that you said years ago on the show about No Child Left Behind. And I think we we're talking about like the overall, like looking back, like, was there anything good from it? And I remember you saying something about like the data and just this this notion that we're going to see data broken up by subgroup. And and I know you and I represent, I guess, more of the like veteran side of things. And there's a lot of younger folks in education that don't really know or remember uh, pre No Child Left Behind era or, or even the early years of No Child Left Behind. So to them, maybe seeing data broken down by by subgroup is nothing new, but like it wasn't always that way. And one important part of that is, although I definitely, definitely don't believe in the validity of, of most of those tests that uh, students had to take back in the No Child Left Behind era, um, I don't think those tests really captured the, the genius and the ability of, of so many students. Still, there is something to be said about the disparities that we saw in subject after subject after subject, disparities along race, disparities along income. And now here we are with CTE, finally getting some data showing the racial breakdown of who's in these programs. And now we see those same disparities right there. And the article points out that we, we don't know yet why that's there. Maybe it's the prerequisites to be in some of these programs. Maybe it's going back to what you said about like, you know, if you need algebra two in order to be in this tech program, then right there, that's a gatekeeper. And then that's a mechanism that's continuing to marginalize particular groups. Or maybe it's, you know, individual counselors in their bias or known or unknown and thinking like, oh, this kid, you know, this this kid might be good for hospitality. This kid, you know, um, this kid here, however, maybe, you know, good tech type student, maybe the selection or the guidance that they're offering students, just like we see with AP and honors classes. Sometimes it comes down to the counselors and how they're interacting with kids, or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something else. But in any case, it's definitely worth exploring and not to blame CTE, you know, to your point, like this isn't necessarily a, a case of like needing to blame CTE because this might be reflective of other issues within our system. But I know that I, I work at a school where it's wall-to-wall -wall academies, meaning every student at that school is part of a career technical education academy. And our school has historically predominantly been a black and brown school for the last several decades. And I love that because it's, it's knowing that a lot of these students represent communities that are kept out of these fields. So having a school that primarily black and brown, and we do have engineering programs, we do have business, we do have media technology, and we do have access for students to take these classes. 
I think that's super dope, especially when you look at reports like this and see that that's not the case everywhere. So yeah, work to be done for sure. I'm not surprised by this at all. Like I'm, I'm past the point of being surprised when like black and brown kids particularly are um, not receiving the same services as others or the same uh, educational opportunities as others. But um, I am hopeful that the work will continue to help make sure that those who are taking these CTE classes um, are reflective of the students that we have across our school system. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, it's, it's a fascinating kind of new frontier uh, in our profession, I think, because we have seen um, similarly to some other kind of uh, thematic resurgences in education, right? Like, like dual language immersion programs, right? Uh, you know, it went from being like a, a dirty thing that like, you know- That was outlawed we, in California. Exactly, right? They're like, oh, we have to do with immigrant students, right? To yeah, now- I learn English. Right. Now you have rich communities starting their own like Korean immersion charter schools so their kids can be multilingual because it's like, you know, a study said, it, you know, you get you, it develops your brain better or whatever. Right. And it's like there, there's this it's it's the similar sort of thing. Right. This gentrification of kind of different um, movements in education that fundamentally aren't being built to provide great service to everyone um, yeah. in too many cases, right? They're being built to serve the, in the interests of a set of the community that's like, well, we want cool things for our kids, so make this program and then our kids can have all the seats, right? And like that's been going on in education forever. Uh, yeah. effectively. And so, you know, in one form or another. So it's not surprising that we see this. And I think it's time we revisit uh, what I would argue is like just a very classist uh, uh, paradigm of thought around what CTE education is that devalues a certain set of work and privileges another set of work with this sort of well-intentioned thought that like, well, now we're not being racist and classist because we have this, you know, this like engineering program or we have this STEM program or we have this STEAM program, or we have this and this, you know. Um, and that's not to like, you know, to disrespect all those things, right? But I'm saying it's time we like zoom out a little bit and kind of assess what we're doing and what we're actually providing in terms of service to the community here. Yeah, for sure. All right, Jeff. What's the next pop quiz question? All right, Manuel. Next up is, what is bold and ambitious, but also might just repeat some of the mistakes of the past? Huh. I know it's not education policy because education policy is always forward looking and is always very well thought out and wouldn't repeat any mistakes of the past. So Jeff, I'm stumped. <laughs> uh, well, man, well, sometimes you got to trust your gut, man. You got to go with that first impulse because the answer is indeed education policy. And in this case, man, well, this very interesting case, a potential new policy coming down the pipeline um, here in the state of California to have um, a statewide call to get all third graders reading on grade level by the year 2026. So uh, if that sounds familiar to you it does in, any sound way, familiar. in any way, folks, uh, let's, let's jump into this one. Okay, so this story comes to us from some good reporting um, in EdSource by um, Ali Tadayan. And we've had a few uh, stories from um, Ali Tadayan. We have. Hope I'm, hope I'm putting the right emphasis on the right syllables there um, uh, in recent episodes. So shout, shout out to you, man. Uh, great, great reporting. Appreciate it. 
Um, okay, so let's let's dive in here. Uh, State Superintendent of Public Instruction Tony Thurmond announced a new initiative late in late September that would get all California third grade students reading by 2026. Thurmond said he plans to put together a task force of educators, parents, and education experts within the next few weeks that will eventually make policy recommendations. Research has shown that students who aren't reading at grade level by the third grade will struggle to catch up throughout their educational career. During the 2018-19 school year, only 51% of California students in grades 3 through 11 tested at grade level or above in English language arts on the state's Smarter Balanced Assessment. And only 48.5% of third graders did so. Accountability measurements for this initiative are still to be determined by the task force. And it will also focus on things like school readiness, professional learning, reducing chronic absenteeism, bilingual education, and support that will offset some social and economic impacts that can become a barrier to students. That is a fascinating way to describe uh, what capitalism and racism have done to our communities, <laughs> Manuel. Uh, but that's what uh, State Superintendent uh, of Instruction Tony Thurman said. In 2020, the state settled a lawsuit filed on behalf of students who struggled with reading by rewarding 75 elementary schools across the state a total of $50 million in state block grants to pay for things like literacy coaches, TAs, training for teachers, and reading materials that reflect the cultural makeup of the students in the school. One of the challenges of this 2026 goal is research suggesting that many children have lost momentum on fundamental literacy skills during the pandemic. The university-based research organization PACE found that reading fluency in second and third graders fell about 30% behind the usual benchmark in a study comparing data from fall 2020 with fall 2019. So, Manuel, we have a call from an executive political official in the state saying that no child in the state of California shall be left behind the rest of the group of students in the state of California and all shall be reading on grade level by 2026 or, or maybe just reading. And I'm not quite sure what just reading and reading on grade level, what the real distinction is there, Manuel. But this is a fascinating story. I can't wait to hear what you think. What, what are you thinking? Man, it just makes me sad. Honestly, the, the, the policy, the, the, what the state superintendent is aiming to do, that's not what makes me sad. What makes me sad is just that, like, I remember young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed Rustin who entered the profession at a time when the president said, by this year, everybody's gonna be proficient in all these different subjects. And I just remember those days, and I remember entering the profession, not being hopeful that that would work, but just being hopeful that like we would get somewhere. And I remember some of the first staff meetings I went to, and the veteran teachers were telling me First year teacher, they're like, look, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to pay too much attention because whatever they're talking about is going to come and it's going to go. And I remember the arrogance that I had at that time to think, what are they know? Like, they are so negative. How could they be so negative? Like, how are we ever going to improve the system with teachers who are so negative about things? And here I am, veteran teacher, hearing something that is like 
echoes to those No Child Left Behind days that by this year, we'll get all these students at this level on this test or whatever. And I just can't help but think like, oh, been here, seen it before, this too shall pass. And now I'm like, damn it, am I that negative veteran teacher that I used to criticize when I first entered the classroom? Like, how did this how did this happen? And I, I know how it happened. It happened because the system is, is, is flawed in so many different ways. And something like this, where of course we want all third graders to be able to read at you know whatever grade level is, whatever the science says grade level is, of course we want that. And of course we should be exploring ways to make that happen. But when I hear task force, you know, there's been so many task forces that have come and gone throughout education, throughout, you know, our state government and others. And when I hear a particular year, like 2026, that's the year, it just makes me think like, well, what happens when we get to 2026 and it didn't happen, then what? And it just echoes to all the failures of No Child Left Behind. I like that this particular plan here does point out all these other factors outside of the school system that impact reading scores. Because obviously like reading scores are impacted by all, by all kinds of things, um, thanks to the you know racial capitalist system that we have. But yeah, I'm just, hold on. it just makes me sad, man. It makes me sad. I'm like, okay, been here, done that, seen this before. I, I can't say I'm hopeful. I don't wanna be negative. I don't wanna be negative about this, but um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm a little bit cynical here. So I've seen yeah. this before. What do you think? Yeah. I, well, first of all, I I understand um, what you said. I you know I don't think you are the the uh, <laughs> the crusty veteran stereotype who I'm, I'm, you I'm know, starting just to feel like it. Reads though. the newspaper at the front of class and and like doesn't challenge the kids. Um, but the uh, the sort of uh, reform fatigue I think that uh, most veterans in education feel. I think it's very real and comes from just an objective truth, which is we have such uh, such a lack of continuity of effort over time in our profession, pr principally driven by the fact that our profession is controlled by politicians and the winds of, of you know, two party politics in this country and not controlled by a professional uh, you know, sort of centered locus of control, right? It's not actually educators who are in this profession for our career who are driving the agenda. It's politicians, frankly. And then corporations who lobby politicians to get assessment regimes and curriculum put in place. Now that is a, you know, somewhat reductionist and very cynical take. And also, uh, tell me where I'm wrong. Um, it's facts. But, it's facts. <laughs> yeah, all, all that to say, um, I have very mixed feelings about this because on the one hand, just like you, I was like, oh my God, there's no child left behind all over again. Like, don't do it, Tony Thurman. Because uh, like, the reality is um, the, the well-intentioned place that this policy is coming from. And I actually love that the state is really considering thinking about like, how do we help kids read? Because the barriers we have with literacy right. um, in our state and in our communities are the fundamental, um, in terms of the sphere of school, are, I would argue, the fundamental barrier. If you can read well, you can perform in any discipline, right? And once that barrier is overcome, then we're just running into things like, well, I don't really like physics or, you know, what, where's my motivation and my interest and that sort of thing. But for too many youth, we don't even get there, right? Because they don't like school because school's hard because they can't read, right? 
And school is also hard for other reasons, but like in the classroom, in the content, in the textbook, in the you know project that you're working on, reading is such a huge barrier. And it is a fundamental, like, you know, speak, speaking of um, Goldie Muhammad, uh, it is a fundamental, like historical legacy, right? Particularly in the black community that our ancestors have fought um, from the time in this country when it was illegal to teach us to read, right? And people lost lives or, you know, were tortured or maimed permanently for engaging in the practice of learning to read because becoming literate and becoming empowered um, with the word in that sense is such a threat to the status quo. Right. Um, and it's such an empowering thing. So from that standpoint, I love it. And I'm glad Tony Thurman's pushing on this. And on the other hand, I'm like, look, man, this feels a little bit like an educational equivalent of some of these uh, policies targeting people who are experiencing homelessness. Right. Where they're like, oh, we're just going to like have this really good outreach program. And I'm kind of like, dude, give them a place to live. Like, like, build them a house and give them a house. Their problem is they don't have a home to live in. We can offer a solution to that problem. Of course, there's a million other problems. There's substance abuse and there's mental health and there's, you know, all kinds of stuff, right? Trauma and all these things. But like, we have the ability to intervene on these things. Like, look, man, why can't third graders read, Manuel? It's not for some big, deep, complicated reason, right? It is like families are in crisis. Families are struggling to put food on the table, struggling to, you know, make it and get by in this country, struggling with their own effects of an oppressive, classist, racist system. I'm like, fix that problem. And they don't have books at home in some cases, right? So like, let's fix those problems. Food, housing, books at home. Right. Like these are the things that we need. Right. Like sick days from work. So they so they could take care of their child and not have to send their child, you know, to school when they're sick. And these sorts of things. Right. Like this policy isn't going to do from my perspective or what I'm aware of here, at least any of that kind of stuff. And I think that's where we're just like missing the boat a little bit. It's important that we focus on the classroom and school based solutions. We can do better with instruction and that sort of thing. But um, but also I'm like, look, man, if we want all third graders to read, that's a great policy goal. And it's going to take much more than just like, here's some PD for teachers and here's a new, you know, blended learning program to support reading. Yeah. It's going to take much more than that. Much more. I'm all for trying new approaches. I'm all for, I mean, obviously reading has been a problem in California for a while. And, you know, this article showed that like, most students are, or most of the uh, data that we have shows roughly, you know, half of students score at, you know, whatever is considered the the right grade level for their for their reading. So, you know, obviously there's work to be done even before the pandemic. But these blankets type by this year, we're going to get everybody to this level. That's just not it's not realistic. And I think it's also not very helpful because it just reinforces this idea that like, it's really just a matter of like, put it in the effort and we'll fix it and then we'll move on. And it's so much bigger than what happens at the school sites, um, just as you just pointed out. But we shall see, we shall see. I hope to be proven wrong. I hope, yeah. uh, hopefully we'll have a do now story in 2026. That's like, hey, all the third graders in California are reading at the level that uh, they're supposed to read. Hopefully that will be a do now story. In fact, that'll be a class dismissed. That'll be a celebration. 
I hope so. 2026. It's it's we're damn near 2022. So four years from now, Jeff, we just got to keep the show going for four more years so we can get to that story to celebrate the outcome. Yeah. Of this I, plan. One one last thought on this story, Manuel, is if Tony Thurman uh, does this well. I, I don't have a lot of confidence that the state legislature or any politician is going to support this. But the the direction of accountability needs to be pointed up. OK, so we want to get every yep. kid reading on grade level at you know third grader in, at grade level by 2026. Cool. So if and when we get there and we haven't hit that goal, what does that mean? Right. It needs to mean things like, oh, snap, like we need to tax wealthy people more so we can generate more, you know, more revenue, shrink class sizes in places where kids aren't reading on grade level. Like, oh, snap, this means we got to pour millions and millions of more dollars into public libraries and, you know, paying parents to work less so they can sit at home and read with their kids or whatever it might be. Right. Like that's the direction that we need from accountability and i very much fear that what might happen in this is just a new regime of like how deficient are the kids and therefore how deficient are the teachers and now how can we shame them into being better and i think we've tried that it doesn't work and we can do better there we go there we go folks that's it for today's pop quiz today's do now up next super dope guest and um super dope conversation about decolonizing education and decolonizing the classroom. That's in our seminar. Stay tuned. What up, AOTA family? Now, we really appreciate your support. Some of you have reached out, uh, letting us know that you would love to leave a five-star review and do a little write-up, but you can't seem to find it on Apple Podcasts because it's kind of buried there. So just so you know, if you are using Apple Podcasts, if you go to your library, which has all the shows that you follow, if you click on our show and then scroll, you gotta scroll all the way down to the bottom, at least on my phone, on my version, that's that's how you do it. Scroll all the way down to the bottom, then you'll see the reviews there, and uh, you could leave us that five stars. And if you have a moment to write a little, a little write-up, that would be great. These sorts of things help us show up in more educator searches when folks are out there trying to find podcasts to listen to about education and your support goes a long way. Thank you so much. Now back to the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are so excited to have you here with us today. And we have an incredible guest here with us to unpack, I would say, one of the meatier questions for all of us who are interested in issues of justice and liberation in education. That is how to decolonize our schools and the curriculum. And we have the fantastic Carolyn Roberts with us here today. Welcome, Carolyn, to all the above. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to be here today. All right. Well, let me tell you a little bit more about Carolyn. Carolyn Roberts is an indigenous academic working in the Faculty of Education at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, Canada, where she is a faculty lecturer and indigenous pedagogies teaching fellow. Carolyn uses her voice to support indigenous resurgence through education. She is a Coast Salish woman belonging to the Baker family from the Squamish Nation and the Kelly family from the Shiatan Nation. Carolyn has been an educator and administrator for over 20 years in the K-12 system. Her work is grounded in educating about indigenous people and the decolonization of the education system. She works with pre-service teachers to help build their understandings of indigenous history, education, and ancestral ways of knowing to create a brighter future for all indigenous people and the seven generations yet to come. 
Welcome again, Carolyn, to All the Above, and I'm going to kick it over to Manuel for our first question. Yeah. Decolonial dopeness in the building. Carolyn Roberts, thank you so much for taking time out to be here on All the Above. And the last time I saw you was at the Dismantling White Supremacy Conference uh, that Joe Trust put on back in back in June. And I know you've, you've taught about and spoken a lot about decolonizing our learnings our learning experiences and decolonizing our curriculum and the importance of removing the colonial disease from ourselves. So in this present historical context, what does it mean to decolonize in this way? Oh, such a good question. Yeah, well, our education system has been and always has been created with the Western colonial perspective and lens. So it's really colonized and it sets us into these compartments and ways of thinking that everything is separate and everything is not working together as a cohesive whole because we're separating out subjects we're separating out children under age groups right and does it really mean that if you're seven year seven years old that wow all of a sudden you're a reader it's not the case. All of our students and all of our children come into the system all at different levels and knowing and understanding. So when we try to separate them, as colonialism has done, it's about the severing of things. Um, it divides us up and the system is made and has been always created and made for uh, white settlers to be successful in. So when we're looking at it from an indigenous perspective, we're talking about relationships and relationality and how we work together and how we create a whole human being rather than all of these separate pieces of, of who we are and what we are and what we educate. It's all so interconnected. So we want to look at within our classrooms, how can we make sure that we're having more than just one voice in the classroom? And it's usually the white voice in our classroom. So we need to make sure the classroom and the spaces that we have have more than just that voice so that our students are coming in that can actually connect with something and see themselves in something. If we only ever give them white authors or white children's books to read, that's the only thing that they're going to see. And it makes it like this assimilation process into the white culture when our students in our classroom aren't all the same. They come from all different backgrounds, with all different cultures, with this whole different perspective of the world that they're missing out on within this colonial perspective, this one-sided, single-sided story within our classrooms. Hmm. Yeah, I, I so appreciate what you're saying there. And um, you're really making me think a lot about some of the, the ways in which... Um, you know, oftentimes when we talk about uh, decolonizing education, I think sometimes we think mostly about, um, you know, sort of representation or presence of um, diverse groups of people in the written curriculum um, in front of us. You're also pushing my thinking to, you know, to go beyond just the, the presence of people, right, or different um yeah, races, religions, genders, et cetera, in the curriculum, but also to kind of ways of knowing and, and thinking and understanding that are different across um, cultural or racial groups. Um, and that is something that I'm not sure our schools have really, um, you know, been able to tackle, it's certainly, you know, not here in the United States, at least. I wonder if you can... Um, maybe offer any insight into like what what does that look like are there ways that um 
that you might offer us to think about, like in, in the classroom, how does one respond to that or um, be inclusive of that? Mm, such a good question. So what it all, what is, what it all comes down to is the relationships you have within your classroom. So a as an academic in the university system, I'm supposed to put forward my um, course syllabus, my weekly breakdown and everything that I'm going to teach my students. And I'm supposed to have that in before we even start the class. And it's always this tension with myself is that I don't know the students coming into my classroom. So how is it that I can give you what I'm going to be teaching them on a weekly breakdown if I don't have this relationship with my students? Who are these students coming into my classroom? What are they coming in with? What is the knowledge center and base that they come into this classroom with? And if if I don't understand that, then how can I uh, responsibly as an educator say, okay, here's what we're going to learn and here's what we're going to talk about and here's what we're going to grow from. So it's about building the relationships that you have with your students and then making sure that within that, that you have representation of all of those students in your classroom, whether it's in the books that you read, um, whether it's in the curriculum that you're doing, how are you um, focusing in on the students' culture and background within the lessons and everything that you're doing within the classroom? And it's going to be different every single classroom that you walk into. So there's not this predetermined, how am I going to do this is how am I going to do it for this group of students that are coming in? What do I know about them? What do I know about their histories from their culture, from their background? How can I make sure that I'm making relationships with the parents? Um, a big thing for Indigenous um, students coming into our classrooms, a lot of our parents come in from intergenerational trauma from Indian residential schools here in Canada and boarding schools down in the United States. So you're not gonna have these parents coming into your classrooms and into your spaces. So it's gonna be difficult to make these um, connections and relationships. So then I want you to rethink, so how, how can I do this differently? Instead of asking them in to come into parent-teacher night, can I ask them to come to the playground? Can I ask them to come to the local coffee shop next door to the school so that they're not actually coming into our institution? Um, because it might have trauma around that. And it might not just be Indigenous parents and families that feel that. There could feel that with other families as well. So how are you making and taking the steps of making these relationships with your students and with the community so you know um, a little bit of background and then how to represent them and make sure every time when we're opening up, okay, so within this lesson, are all of my students in this classroom represented in this lesson? Am I giving them an opportunity for them to be able to see themselves in this lesson? Or am I only going to this one specific um, colonized view of this? Is there other worldviews? And a lot of that has to do of how we teach things. So when we're talking about, um, I was reviewing some work of a book that they were going to put out about dams in Canada. And it was this colonial view of dams, of why they built dams, why they're important, and da 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 da. I'm like, okay, so, but if we're going to look at this as an Indigenous perspective, what has this dam done to the land, the stolen land, that um, has created and uprooted this ecosystem that was there before? So this dam has cut off the fishy, the fish resources that the communities were eating from. It's also created this weird way of how the water then goes down to the ocean and has created um, 
like it's killed off so many of the plants and animals and then when they get down to the ocean has the silt that has has changed it drastically and then what about the people that were living there what about the animals that were living there how has this affected this place and that's a different perspective of when you're coming in at grade three and you're learning about dams and the good power and all of that stuff from them we need to show the other perspective as well because if we don't then our students are never going to understand the impacts of colonialism and what has happened and they have that severing and disconnect to the places and spaces that they're in mm -hmm. yeah um it's so appreciate those thoughts there and um here in the united states at least i think we um have struggled <laughs> to, to put it lightly um with being able to teach in ways that are responsible, respectful, humanizing um, about indigenous history and indigenous culture. And frankly, uh, we have had deeply problematic examples of that that have existed as a part of schools and part of school culture forever here with things like, you know, fictional reenactments of Thanksgiving, um, you know, or uh, offensive sports team mascots. Um, but really stuff that's, you know, pretty deeply problematic in that way. Um, so thinking about educators who are, who are wanting to and trying to confront um, these issues that, that you're naming, um, how would you advise them to, to engage in that work? And in particular, in a context where we have lots of educators who are um, not working in close proximity to indigenous communities um, or people, um, but are wanting to uh, improve their practice in this way. What, what kind of words of advice or guidance might you offer them? You guys have such great questions. So, so this question is really, really important. And I like how you worded the last little bit. What happens if there are not indigenous communities or peoples close by to, to where they're living? So all the land in North America is stolen land. It was never, it, no, it was never bought, sold, or traded to the settlers that came here. So when you're saying that there's no communities or indigenous people there, why? How come? because they were moved off of their territories, they were put on reservations, they were moved across the continent and 6,000 of them died as they walked across the continent. And then the boarding schools on top of that, here in Canada with our residential schools, so far we have uncovered 6,000 mass graves of indigenous children. So the reason why we're not around is because they purposefully are trying to get rid of the indigenous people, which is the that hold the, the land rights and titles to the lands right so that would be my first question then my second question is okay so what is it in our main society that we're telling and i like how you you touched upon like disney and pocahontas and 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 mascots and all that so when we think about pocahontas we're thinking about the very first murdered and missing indigenous women and girl who ha has happened pocahontas was 10 when this story was taking place for Disney 10 and um, Smith was in his 30s. So let's take a look at what the real story is here because Disney's not sharing us the real story of what happened. Pocahontas was kidnapped from her community, taken overseas, shown off as the, this pride of the savage person that we've now, we've now brought over here and then she died of disease. 
So what's really important for us is, okay, so this is an Indigenous story. Let's unpack this. Is this a true story? How can I find out the information about that? And I love Buffy St. Marie because she, she nails it. She was in a conversation in the 70s. She was in this interview and you could feel how uncomfortable it was. Um, the fellow was asking about Christopher Columbus and she says, Christopher Columbus didn't discover us. We discovered him. And then there's this uncomfortable silence and giggle. It's like, but no, for real, how can you discover a place when there's tens of thousands of people that live here already? How is that a discovery? So we have purposefully been misled in our education. This colonized, westernized view of education has purposely uneducated us about what has happened upon these territories. And they want to perpetuate and continue that story because it looks good for them. Look at us, look how great we are. Came, we conquered, we're here, right? Which isn't the whole story. There were people here before that who were nurturing and caring for this land. And what's their story? And if you don't have those communities around you, why don't we know about that? Um, one of the best comments in the um, when we were working with Joe last year was all of our street names are are indigenous, but then we don't have any indigenous people here. What's with that? And I'm like, that's such a good question. It's our responsibility as educators to push against what's been shown to us and what's been taught to us to question and to critically think about what we're teaching and why we're teaching it. Are we going to continue to perpetuate this colonized view of the world? Or are we going to open up our classroom spaces to make sure that we hear more voices and more about what the history is? And it's really our it's our roles to educate ourselves because the system has failed us. The system continues to, fa to fail Black, Indigenous, and people of color on a daily basis because that system doesn't reflect who we are. So it's our responsibility as educators to make sure that our, our children are at least getting the representation and the history of the people from where they're from. And I... I might have gone on a few tangents and not answered nah. the full question. <laughs> nah, those, I mean, I don't see those as tangents at all. I really appreciate the explicit, like, examples of what a decolonized lesson or classroom or school could actually look like. Because a lot of times when folks think about, you know, when educators, we, we, we hear certain, certain folks toss around the term decolonized here and there. And, you know, I, I love your, your example of dams and how, like, even the teaching of dams or how we speak about dams, they're the how to do that in a decolonized way. Because a lot of times we think, not we, but some educators think, okay, Indigenous Peoples Day is coming up. Let me do my one lesson on, on Indigenous peoples and show that I'm decolonizing my classroom. And then they move on. But this is really something that is, is importantly, should be importantly embedded in uh, throughout the different subject areas and throughout the different ways that we approach our conversations around this. And, and you, you work with pre-service teachers in Canada. And of course, Canada and the United States have similar histories of colonialism and, and oppression and violence against Indigenous folks. And we want to know, like, in your and your work with pre-service teachers in Canada, like how are those teachers being prepared to be able to, to teach about Indigenous culture and history? And, and what lessons from how teachers are being prepared in Canada uh, might we benefit from here in the United States in preparing our next generation of teachers to enter the classroom? Yeah. So, so 
Just recently, in 2015, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission here in Canada came about, and it has these 94 calls to action. These are just the education ones that are behind me in the red. Um, so through these 94 calls to action, the... Um, they were the indigenous people were mandating the government to make changes within the education system because we don't have enough indigenous academics we don't have enough indigenous teachers um, in the places in the spaces that our children come into and a lot of that has to do with the trauma the intergenerational trauma of colonization on indigenous people but it also it also has to do with um, us being able to get to the point where we can be successful within the system in order to check the boxes of what you need to be Come an educator in these places, and there's lots of research around um, uh, the the different things that Indigenous people need in order to be successful in the colonized system. In order to check the boxes and get the certificate, in order to be able to teach within the system that they want to change, right? And I always, I always use that within my story. Um, because of my history of, of cultural trauma is that I've used the system against itself in order to be here today to educate you about the things you weren't taught about about us in the system. So what we really do need to have is to have more Indigenous people within these educational spaces to be able to share a different worldview and a different perspective within the classrooms. And some of that um, change can come with changing HR policies of why they want us in academics. They want Indigenous people in academics because of what we bring to the table as Indigenous people. So if that's the case, then why are we going through all these steps and processes to um, get certified under their colonial way when they really want us for the to the indigenous perspectives so like there's this this tension of they want the indigenous part of you but they still want to colonize you before you come in to bring your indigenous perspective into these places so it's kind of like this this constant state of tension so what we're really trying to do since 2015 there has been now mandated across canada that um, new educators take at least one course of indigenous history um, in order to become educators. So we want to pack as much as we can in um, in 13 weeks of education so we can prepare our teachers. We can totally teach about 150 years of genocide and colonization in 13 weeks. Come on, folks. That's not enough. So <laughs> that's my sarcasm. Sorry. So because we need to... we. Because of that, so some uh, some universities are doing the one-off courses. Our university has a weaving model where we're weaving it into all of the things that we're doing, and it's a process, and I'm working alongside my Indigenous Teaching Pedagogies fellow hat is me working with our faculty and our faculty associates in order to weave that in. But we need more Indigenous faculty to be in these educational spaces to help shift the gaze of colonialism and shift the worldview in order to see that there's different ways that we can educate. All right, Carolyn, for our last question today, we wanted to ask you actually about something that um, we read, uh, something you said in um, 
conjunction with an event that we uh, had an opportunity to appear at together um, back in June, which was the Dismantling White Supremacy Culture Conference. And in an interview um, for that conference, you said the following, um, using academic achievement and graduation rates as the only method to measure success perpetuates the racist belief that BIPOC students are less than, less than smart, less than brilliant, less than period. And I'm wondering, those, those are um, powerful, provocative words. I'm wondering if you can um, share some of your thinking with us about how you kind of negotiate the tension between um, needing to equip students, particularly students who are coming from the most marginalized communities in our, um, in our society, to be successful on those metrics in order to survive um, in this context, but also to overcome the oppressive context with which they are grappling. I'm wondering if you can share your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that, I think it, I think we need to be really critically clear uh, about the, the system itself is broken and it's not made for success for everybody. It's made success for white middle class students to achieve and move forward and then go on to make sure that we have white middle class people in the places and spaces that are making all these these governmental decisions and policies and all of that stuff. So when we're talking about using the, the graduation rates, um, it's just really a featureless a number, like it's just a number, right? So let's say for, for here in British Columbia, when I see a school district saying, oh, well, our graduation rates for Indigenous students is up 2% this year from last year. That's that's fantastic. And I'm like, oh, yeah, great. Our Indigenous students are getting more assimilated every year each as we go. Yay, that's not a win for us, right? And I think what we need to unpack and dismantle is what do we mean by success? What does success look like within these spaces for our students to be successful? As an Indigenous person, what I see success for, for my children and my community is for our Indigeneity to be able to continue on that we have language speakers, that we have students and children who are grounded in their cultural, in their traditional ways of knowing and being, being connected in community and being in service of community. That's what success looks like for an indigenous community because that's how our worldview and perspective is shaped. Um, a lot of the a lot of the tensions going into teacher education programs is the wording within the programs because there's volunteer hours that's requested of you to get in but when we're in community we're in service to community that's not volunteer that's your responsibility so even by the ways of wording things in order to be getting into these places needs to shift and change so we really need to dismantle what we mean by success we success doesn't mean that every grade one's going to be reading at the end of grade grade one and then they're going to grade two they're going to learn plus and minuses and all of these things but what is that actually going to what's that going to accomplish for them how are they going to be a productive member of society and i think that's how we should be measuring how our students are doing and not again so the colonial system likes to separate us out here in canada we have the majority of the population indigenous students and then students with exceptionalities that's how they view the school district 
well, that's a racist gaze now, isn't it? How can we, how can we just, why are we only taking these two students out and taking a look at that? What I would like to see flip around and let's talk about who are our educators? What, what are their nationalities and what are their heritages and what are they bringing into the classroom? Because here in Surrey, where I live, the population of BIPOC people is 63% of the population. My children have been in the K-12 system now for, well, my daughter's graduating this year. So for 13 years, she's had two people of color as her mm -hmm. teachers. Two people in 12 years. And in, in high school, you have eight different teachers. So let's take, let's shift our gaze back to the education system itself. If we're only being educated um, by white middle-class people, then that's what's gonna be coming out in our education system. So, um, and the gaze isn't gonna change with, with that, that population who the system's working for. So we really need to stop saying, if you graduate, you're successful, because that's not what it means. There's lots of people who are graduated that might not be successful, productive members of societies, yet there's people who don't graduate who are hugely successful members of society. So what is it that we're teaching and what is it that we're holding up and valuing in these spaces? And I think that needs to shift. I think that we need to unpack and dismantle all this compartmentalizing of, of the system and how we think of it. Mm. Wow, uh, so much to unpack with um, with what you just said there. And um, I think that is a sign that we're gonna have to have you back on the show uh, at some point, Carolyn, uh, to go a bit a bit deeper around that, especially in this moment. I, I don't know if I speak for Manuel, but I think I might. Um, when we spent the last year talking about how we're gonna you know, reinvent education and respond to the needs of the pandemic, and here we are here in Los Angeles at least, a little over a month into the school year, and it feels so much like we've just reestablished the order of things that we had before. Um, this, this work around dismantling and uh, moving the goalposts of what success looks like uh, is, in my mind, um, the next you know, sort of frontier of work that we need to take on um, as a profession. So Carolyn Roberts, uh, Indigenous educator, professor at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, thank you so much uh, for joining us today on All the Above. It was such a pleasure to have you. No, it's so great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. And of course, they'll come back. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, uh, we look forward to it. Um, and folks, that's it for today's seminar. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, stick around because next up is today's Class Dismissed. All right, folks, it is time for today's Class Dismissed, where we like to pause for a moment and give some props, some love, some flowers to people doing great things in the world of education. And we just have a wonderful story today in the spirit uh, of the seminar discussion we just had thinking about what it means to decolonize education. Well, today's Class Dismissed Class Dismissed is maybe a very concrete uh, example of one way that that can happen. Uh, Manuel, who we got for today? Yeah, this story is really interesting because it kind of brings together uh, a lot of components of, of things that we mentioned earlier in this episode. So for one, we get the story from Ali Tadayan from 
Ed Source. And, and of course, it was his reporting that um, brought us the story about the state superintendent's plan to get all third graders reading by 2026. And that state superintendent, his children went to this school that's at the, the heart of this story. So it's kind of like everything coming together. So this was, was Juan Crespi Middle School. And several months ago, we reported about a project that uh, a teacher initiated with her students around the name Juan Crespi Middle School because during the year of distance learning, of course, that came after the summer 2020 reckoning for racial justice and students at Juan Crespi Middle School wondered if the name of their school, if their school was named after a racist or an oppressor. And the teacher engaged those students in a project to research the person whom their school is named after. Students learned that Juan Crespi was a Spanish missionary whose expeditions were a very major part of the brutal colonization, the brutal oppression of, of native peoples in California specifically. And students decided like, we don't wanna be named after him because he sounds like a racist who would not see us as full genius little humans that we are. So they initiated uh, the move to get the name changed. They went to the school board, presented and all that stuff. The school board agreed and voted, yes, let's get rid of that oppressor's name and name the school after a local hero Betty Reed Solskin. And just a couple of days ago, Betty Reed Solskin, who's uh, the oldest national park ranger in the United States, she just celebrated her 100th birthday. And she is a real pioneer when it comes to uh, not just civil rights and inclusivity, but like the just the natural uh, national park system. And she was at the ceremony where the name of the school got changed from Juan Crespi Middle School to Soskin Middle School. She was there on her birthday for the ceremony where the state superintendent was there to, to speak and honor her and cut the ribbon on the, the new name of the school. And it was just such a beautiful coming together of, of so many things, of the, the decolonization part of what we discussed today, the, the celebration of, of marginalized voices from the past who, who don't get their flowers until they're gone. And here she is able to actually be there when they rename the school after her. Just super dope all around, super dope. So shout out to to her, shout out to the students who, who were part of this project, shout out to the teacher who made space for this type of learning activity for the students, and shout out to Ali Tadayan at EdSource for reporting on this and bringing it to our attention. Indeed, indeed. I will co-sign on all that, Manuel. And one of the things about this story that actually uh, just warmed my heart a little bit is... Um, I was doing, you know, doing a little digging around about Betty Reed Soskin online, and she is uh, also this week featured in a piece on NPR, um, where you know they did a short interview with her. So definitely head over there if you want to um, maybe get to hear from her in her own words. Um, but part of the conversation asked her about Rosie the Riveter because she works at this Rosie the Riveter um, like visitor center monument place. Um, sorry, there's a better word for it than that. But, uh, but that's where she serves as a park ranger. And she said her feelings about Rosie the Riveter are kind of uh, contra you know, sort of uh, controversial because she's, she's always seen Rosie the Riveter as, uh, you know, as like a white woman's story of that time and era. And so just imagining this, this woman who, you know, has been a pioneer and a trailblazer uh, in the, you know, the world of being a, a park ranger, also, you know, navigating um, her life and her journey in this country, uh, you know, through the troubled, 
you know, waters of racism, right? Um, and being able to, you know, kind of offer that critical perspective, um, I just think is, is great. And imagine now kids looking up, who's our school named after? And they read, and they read that and they're like, hmm, what does that mean? Rosie the Riveter was a, you know, was a, a white woman's story of World War II. Um, like, think about how different that is than looking up Juan Crespi's old colonizer self and, you know, how he helped support a genocide, okay? So, love it. Uh, wonderful news coming out of the Bay Area and uh, props to you, Betty Reed Soskin. 100 years old and a few days now. Dope, dope. I do have a Rosie D Rosie the Riveter poster in my classroom. And now I'm thinking, hmm, I wonder if I could find a Betty Reed Soskin poster or some kind of image, mm. something to put right next to that, perhaps. Maybe with that quote yeah. of what she said about um, Rosie the Riveter. So yeah, shout out to Betty Reese Soskin and the students and everybody involved. Super dope story. But that about does it for today's episode, folks. Thank you for joining us and thank you for listening all the way to the end. Look at you still still following us all the way at the end of, of this um, you know lengthy but super dope, hopefully you agree, episode. So again, all of our previous episodes, aotashow.com, links to all the stories we've discussed right underneath this video or this um, podcast, if that's how you're listening or how you're uh, following our, our episode today. And um, yeah, stay dope, folks. We love y'all. See y'all next time.